Remain standing for the sermon text. I'm only going to read two verses from Romans 8. Again, submit yourself to God's holy word. So then, brethren, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Help us, God, to truly submit ourselves to your, to your word. Conform us to it and prevent us from conforming it to us. We ask for this by the help of your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today's sermon is a continuation of last week's message, and the title of these messages is The New You, because the verses we're covering are about your new birth and its consequences, its results, and we could say its requirements. Words like born again or regeneration don't appear in this passage, but the reality and the results of the new birth exude from the whole passage and even every verse. And, and so what do I mean by the new birth? Well, that's, the, that, that's a person's spiritual entrance into the kingdom of God, as Jesus puts it in John 3. Peter, I read several verses last week. I'll read a couple more this week on this. Peter refers to it in chapter 1 of his first epistle when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he goes on to say he's caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the kind of new birth that the people of God, sons of God, the children of God have experienced. That's what God has accomplished in his people. God turns his enemies into his friends and his children by causing them to be born again to a new living hope. And when this birth takes place in you, there's, there's no going back. There's no undoing it. The Bible teaches that it's a permanent transformation. You can't be born again and then be unborn again. John makes this clear, for example, in 1 John. He writes, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, when it says there that those born of God can't keep on sinning, what, that, that, what, it's not saying that people born again become sinless. They stop sinning. He means that they cannot continue in unrepentant sin. They, they can't fall away. They're, they're spiritually unable, is the language that John uses here, spiritually unable to turn away from Christ and to chase after sin again as they did before they were born again, before they were converted. He says very clearly that, that no one born of God can keep on sinning in that kind of a way. It's spiritually impossible because God's seed lives inside of him. And so he can't go back to belonging to sin and Satan because he's been born of God. In, in other words, if you've been born again, there's something inside of you that God has planted 
that compels you to kill your sin rather than to follow it and obey it, to submit to it. To use Paul's language from our text today. This is evidenced by the way that being baptized or being a church member doesn't automatically in itself make you this kind of born again, at least not in the sense that, that Peter and John are using this language in 1 Peter 1.3 and 1 John 3.9. A lot of baptized church members can and do make a practice of sinning, showing themselves not to be born of God in this sense, at least. We discovered last week that the hallmark of the authentic born-again believer is the indwelling, the living inside of, uh, of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we learned in verse 9 that there is a mutual indwelling going on. When a person becomes a child of God, he moves into the Spirit, and the Spirit moves into him. A mutual indwelling. As born-again Christians, you have a new residence and a new resident. A new place of residence where you live and a new resident who lives inside of you. And both of them are God. God himself. You, you've made your home in God and God has made his home in you. And the results of being indwelt by the Spirit is that you have a new power and a new prospect. Your new power can be summarized as new spiritual life. And, and as Paul, and this is last week's sermon again, last week's text, new life, new spiritual life now in this world. And your prospect, which is your new future, can be summarized as new physical life in the world to come. So there's the now and the not yet. There's the spiritual now and the physical later. That later is when you'll get your new body that'll never die or sin or cry or get sick or experience weakness or decay of any kind. So those are the four radical changes we looked at last week. Four radical changes that took place in you the moment you were regenerated. The moment your spirit received new life from God's spirit. The moment you were birthed into the kingdom of God. The moment you became a son of God. We now arrive at the next result or consequence of, indwelling, of the indwelling spirit. Your new obligation. And this is the only point we'll cover today. Though you can see on your handout that there are three subpoints. There are actually three questions that we're going to let Paul answer as we consider our new obligation. So verse 12 says, So then, brethren, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Paul's argument here is logic is that since the indwelling spirit has been, has been given to you and has given you new life, you owe him everything. And so you have a debt to him. And you owe the indwelling flesh nothing. He didn't do anything. It didn't do anything for you. Because the Spirit has given you life, though, your new obligation is to put to death the lingering death inside of you. I like the way John Stott puts it. 
How can we possess life and court death simultaneously? Such an inconsistency between who we are and how we behave is unthinkable, even ludicrous. No, we are in debt to the indwelling spirit of life, to live out our God-given life and to put to death everything which threatens that life and everything that is incompatible with it, end quote. Well, then verse 13 sets before us two paths, two roads, two ways. The one that leads to eternal life and the one that leads to, that ends in eternal death. And those are the only two paths. For if you live according to the flesh, Paul says, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a way of living that leads to death, and there's a way of dying that leads to life. Living for yourself is the path to eternal death. Dying to self is the path to eternal life. Verse 13 is the key verse. Some of you may know this. Uh, Verse 13 is, is the verse on what classically has been called the doctrine of the mortification of sin. Okay, the doctrine of mortification. And maybe you've never heard the word mortification before. Don't worry, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about that, that kind of fancy theological term in a minute. But real, real quick, first, if you want to read an extended biblical treatment of the doctrine of mortification, there's a couple things that I'd point you to. There's, there's an old essay by Arthur Pink that you can find online free titled The Doctrine of Mortification. Has a lot, has, you know, all the relevant texts and some good discussion. But if you want a longer, more thorough treatment, then read the classic volume by the Puritan John Owen. It's called On the Mortification of Sin. And it's an entire book that unpacks Romans 8:13. A whole book that it's essentially an exposition of one verse. It's very practical as well as theological and exegetical. And you, and you can find different uh, kind of updated translations even of it, uh, if you want to call it a translation, um, just modern English. And you can also find a helpful reader's guide, for example, on Desiring God's website. They have a good reader's guide. So what does mortification mean? Well, like I said, it, it, it's a fancy theological word Not just a theological word, but it is used theologically. But it just means putting to death, okay? Putting to death, which is the verb that Paul uses in verse 13. So when you mortify your bitterness, you kill it. When you mortify your covetousness or your lust or your pride, you kill it. When you mortify sin, you put it to death. And that's what Paul's calling us to do here. And and the word, so why mortify? Well, that's the... That's an older word that comes from the, the King James Bible, which translates verse 13 this way. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And the deeds of the flesh, in verse 13, refers to sin. Sinful actions that flow from a sinful heart. 
So that's how we get the doctrine of the mortification of sin from that word in the King James translation. And this doctrine is a neglected topic, so we're going to maybe try to help remedy that today by spending the rest of our time just thinking about what mortification is, how it happens, and why we should practice it. So first, what is the mortification of sin? Maybe we should start with what it's not. Narrow it down. It's not punishing yourself or inflicting pain on yourself when you sin. It's, it's not making yourself pay in those kinds of ways, whether it's physically or emotionally. It's also not just a matter of obeying rules and having high standards. It, be, being an upstanding member of society doesn't mean you're mortifying sin. Having a good reputation at church is not the hallmark of mortification. Having boundaries that you don't cross, even good boundaries, is not an indicator that you're killing your sin, which fundamentally happens inside at the heart level. No, the mortification of sin is the radical and persistent rejection of sin practiced by those who are born of God. It involves a, a repudiation of sin that is so decisive and deep-seated that no imagery can do it justice other than the image of putting to death, killing. The phrase put to death in verse 13 is, is actually just one Greek word. Put to death is one Greek word. Thanatao, and it's a strong word that, that means kill. It, it's the word that often gets used to describe, for example, the execution of a death sentence. In other places in Scripture, Paul refers to the crucifixion of the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5.24. To mortify is to crucify. Mortifying your sin is taking up your cross and denying yourself and all of its base desires, which is exactly what Jesus summons all of his disciples to do. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Mark 8, 34. And there are parallel passages that say similar things. If you profess to be a Christian, you must deny yourself, be crucified, and follow Christ. That's what those three things mean. Ancient Rome required its convicted criminals to, to carry their cross, if they were being crucified, to the site of the crucifixion. So to carry your cross, which is what Jesus calls us to do, is symbolic of following Jesus all the way to the place of execution to the place of your execution. And when you get there, what are you to do? You are to crucify your sin. You are to put to death the deeds of the body. You are to kill every use of your body, which is your comprehensive self, your, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your feet, your heart, your mind, your soul. You are to execute every use of your created self that serves yourself instead of God and others. 
After Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, that we must deny, our, uh, deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, he goes on to describe two paths. There's, there's, there's Paul's echoing Jesus here in many ways. One path that leads to death, one to life. For whoever, this is the next verse, Mark 8, 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So this is the same paradox that we see in Paul's language. There, there's a way of living that leads to death, and there's a way of dying that leads to life. And what Jesus and Paul are teaching us here is that mortifying yourself and your sin is a matter of life and death. Mortification is the only path to life. Killing sin doesn't save you. But killing sin is the way every saved person lives. It's the way of every saved person. And what's interesting in that passage from Mark 8 is that Jesus doesn't actually talk about crucifying sin. That's, that's the meaning. It's part of the meaning. Uh, but he's, he actually goes even broader. He, he actually says, kill yourself. Whoever loses his life. Jesus says, we'll save it. And this is instructive. You see, killing sin ultimately means killing, in some sense, ourselves. Because we are, by nature, sinners. Sinning is what we do most naturally when we come into this world. And so mortifying sin means dying to our deepest desires, our, our, our most natural, deepest desires, dying to our most natural impulses, the ones that have been there or that were there before even we were born again. It means killing the desires in us that are at war with the Spirit's desires. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. They're at war with each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians 5.17 Mortifying sin means mortifying the desires that you are tempted to let define you. It means killing the impulses that you are tempted to let control you. Mortifying sin does not include negotiating with sin. You should never make a deal with your sin. You know, if you just stay at bay, we can kind of make this thing work. You can't give it an inch in the hope that it will be content. Christians don't play games with sin. They don't wean themselves off of sin. When you identify a sin, the only acceptable plan of attack every time is to cut it off cold turkey. You shouldn't play with your sin the way a cat plays with a mouse before it kills it. Sometimes the mouse gets away, but the main point here is that no sin is as small or as harmless as a mouse. Every sin is a potential Leviathan. And so you must kill it swiftly and immediately before it 
kills you. John Owen, the author of that book, that Puritan that I was talking about, he famously said in that book on the mortification of sin, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Those are the two options. Those are, those are the two things that are happening. One of those two is, is happening in every person. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I read this week that the world's deadliest snake is the inland taipan, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, it lives in Australia, so I guess you don't, we don't have to worry about it. But um, they, they say the venom from one bite can kill 100 full-grown humans. Now, just imagine that you came home and there was one of these guys coiled up, coiled up on the floor in your living room. Would you gather, you know, would, would this be the time to gather the children around to, to play with it, you know, maybe examine it, uh, you know, homeschool moment or something like that? Would, would you, or would you contain it in a cardboard box and keep it as a pet so you could, you know, show your friends or something like that? No, anyone with sense would mortify it, put it to death. You'd, you'd aim for the head. And you probably wouldn't stop caving in its skull with the shovel until it stopped writhing. Might even damage your, your floor in the meantime because you would be so committed. Well, you have something far more dangerous coiled up in your heart. It's called sin. You have multiple venomous serpents in you that need to die. And, and you shouldn't play with any of them or try to contain them in a leaky cardboard box. You, you should never plan to wean it, the, these sins or, or tell yourself you can keep it under control. No, you get as far away from it as possible. You stay away from even the things that might lead to it or even the things that are even questionable. You are at war with sin. A real war. This is not just a metaphor. This is, this is like the real thing. Other wars are metaphors in a sense, right? This is the important war. So mortify it. Put it to death. Aim for its head, the head of your sin. Crush its skull. When Jesus crushed Satan's head on the cross, he crushed sin's power over you. Through the cross and by the power of the Spirit, you can crush the deeds of the flesh, the evil deeds of the body. You can, and you must. Second, how does the mortification of sin happen? Paul's language is very clear that mortification is something you do, something that you have to do. It's not something that happens to you passively. It's not a matter of being put to death. I mean, that, that does happen to you by God's grace, particularly at conversion, right, where he, you die with Christ by the grace of God. So there's a theological point to be made there that we want to hold dearly. But that's not what Paul's saying here. It's not a being put to death. It's a matter of you putting to death here. We're not passive in the work of mortification. It's not done 
to you. It's done by you. You're responsible for putting your own evil deeds of the body to death. Now, it's true that you can't do this in your own strength. That's why Paul says in verse 13, by the Spirit. You can only kill sin by the power and the agency of the Spirit living inside of you, the Spirit who caused you to be born again in the first place. Only He can give you the desire and the determination and the discipline to eradicate sin. Still, still, it's you who must take action. You must take the initiative. You can't blame it on God when you fail to take the initiative. Initiative. So in Scripture, there's a negative and there's a positive approach to mortifying sin. Negatively, Paul says later in Romans that we must make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. That's in Romans 13. This means being proactive and on guard. It means being vigilant and means being diligent in the fight against sinful desires. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the way to deal with sin... Pay attention to this. This is a good word picture here. The way to deal with sin is to pull it out, look at it, denounce it, and hate it for what it is. Jones is wise to point out how intentional and methodical we must be. Too often we don't hate our sin for what it is because we haven't done the, the difficult, the uncomfortable, hard work required of seeing it for what it is. It's not a fun thing to do, to look at your own sin for what it is and to be honest about it. We don't see it for what it is because we lack the courage to look at it, to stare at it squarely. It's difficult to look at the disgusting evil inside of us. We quickly, we, we quickly want to avert our eyes, think about something else, look at something else. It takes spiritual courage to look at anger and to see it for the murder that it is. It takes spiritual fortitude to realize that you're gossiping or lying or cursing or criticizing tongue has been set on fire by hell lately. It's hard to admit that your lustful looks at women or at, or, or at other images constitutes adultery, which is major disloyalty toward your wife and to God. Jones is right, though. Whatever the sin is, you've got to take it out, pull it up, stare at it, look at look at square in the eyes, turn it all around and see it from all of its disgusting angles. Stare at it until you see it for what it is, which is how God sees it. That's what you're going for. Then denounce it, condemn it, deplore it, and don't put it down. Don't stop staring at it and denouncing it until you despise it with all your heart, until you hate it for what it is. Until you hate it the way God hates it. 
That's the kind of seriousness about sin that Jesus was getting at when he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's the negative side of mortification. Positively, the way you kill sin is to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, on the desires of the Spirit instead of the desires of the flesh. Practically, this means only putting into your eyes and ears those things that are true and honorable and just or righteous and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. Philippians 4.8. I think Philippians 4.8 is maybe one of the most blatantly disobeyed verses among modern Christians, including Reformed Christians, including us, and I'm not exempting myself or my family here. I, in fact, I was confessing my failure along these lines uh, in, uh, to some of my children just this week. Paul gives a very clear command in Philippians 4.8 to only put into your mind whatever is true and, and these are ands, not ors, and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. If there's a song in your playlist or a movie on your watch list or a show on your TV or a YouTube video on your phone or computer or a book on your shelf or a fantasy in your heart or a joke in your head or a word on your lips or a picture on your screensaver or a poster on your wall that doesn't meet all of the criteria in Philippians 4.8, remove it, mortify it, crush it, eradicate it, and then go into your heart and mortify whatever it was there, whatever idol what, that was drawing you to that thing that did not honor Christ. Instead of gorging yourself on whatever the world serves you on its fake silver platters, cultivate instead a deep hunger and a panting thirst for righteousness. Uh, a necessary companion or counterpart to mortifying sin something that always comes with it, is craving righteousness. In other words, loving righteousness is, is a, the necessary counterpart to hating sin. These things exist and increase together in parallel. You can only hate evil as much as you love holiness. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin. You, you'll only be able to hate and kill sin to the extent that you are craving and cultivating righteousness. Finally, what should you, uh, why should you practice the mortification of sin? Well, kind of the obvious answer, I guess, is that God, it, it honors God. God requires it. But this business of killing the deeds of the body, it, it, it seems unpleasant and painful, uncomfortable, and it 
certainly runs counter to our tendency to find the path of least resistance and, and to search for comfortable situations rather than uncomfortable. You can't be soft and lazy and self-indulgent if you're going to mortify sin. And yet we all naturally tend toward those things. This, so what this means is that if you're going to engage in the fight victoriously, you're going to need, we're going to need some robust reasons why you should, why we should. And Paul gives two. And we'll think about each one in closing. And the first one, as we saw in verse 12, is that you have an obligation to mortify sin. And the second one in verse 13 is that you, if you mortify sin, you will live. So those are the two, obligation and life. Let's look at them in reverse order. I want to end with obligation. First, you will live, Paul says. If, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And, and let's be clear, the life that Paul's talking about here is primarily eschatological life, which, you know, that, that's life in the age to come, eternal life in the new heaven and new earth. Now, we know that that eternal life begins now. There's an already aspect to that, e that eternal life. But there's an emphasis here on that eschatological life in this context. But in a sense, it includes all of life, our life now in the spirit, our life to come, which is also in the spirit, in its, in its fullness. He has in mind here the life that God will give to your mortal body when Jesus returns. So Paul says in verse 13 that whether you experience resurrection life in the next world is dependent on whether you put sin to death in this world. So that there's a, it's, there's a conditionality there. It's a, it's, a, it's a condition of sorts. So is Paul contradicting his gospel of grace here? having told us that eternal life is free and undeserved, unable to be merited, earned, is he now saying that we're saved by our, obedient, our obedience, our mortification of sin? No. Paul's just telling us that the, he's just telling us what the road to eternal life looks like so that you know you're on it. Putting sin to death doesn't earn you salvation. It only proves that you have salvation. It tells you that you're on the right path by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God. Life through death lies at the heart of the gospel. Again, there's a way of living that leads to death, and there's a way of dying that leads to life. What the world calls life is really just living for yourself, and this leads to alienation from God, which is death. That's the death, the immediate death that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden when they sinned was alienation from God, separation from God, which is death, the worst kind of death. True life, which is resurrection life, only comes on the other side of death. On the other, not just any death, though, on the other side of death to self and sin. And so you see, eternal life belongs to mortifiers of sin. That's who it belongs to. Not because they mortify sin and therefore God will save them. But mortifying sin 
is what you see those who have eternal life doing. The second reason Paul gives, or really the first reason, but the second reason that we're going to look at that Paul gives for why you should mortify sin is that you have an obligation. And that's kind of the driving, that's the driving force, that's the underlying reason that Paul gives here at the beginning. Your obligation isn't to the flesh, he says, which never did anything for you. It's to the Spirit of Christ who saved you. And, and so how does this work? Well, when you remember what Christ has already done for you and what he has promised to do for you in the future, you'll feel an obligation to kill the evil deeds and desires that are at war with Christ and his spirit. To uproot sin, you must bathe yourself in the grace to which you are obligated. Do, do you see that? To, to, to successfully uproot the sin, the deeds of the, the body, you must, you must be bathing yourself in the grace to which you are obligated. You must expose yourself to the love of God that has put you in eternal debt in, in, to him, an, an eternal debt of gratitude to God. You'll have success meeting your obligation when you're motivated by, the, motivated by the gospel that you're obligated to and the God of that gospel. And so I'm going to end with a, a, a fairly, a, a little bit rough quote uh, from that book I was telling you about um, from, from John Owen's book on the mortification of sin. Owen masterfully teaches us how to look honestly at our sin in the light of the gospel, in the light of God's grace. And this quote, there's a little bit of context here, this quote is from the chapter on how to load, load your conscience with the guilt of your sin. Okay, that sounds like something a Puritan would say, right? It, it, that's the kind of terminology that, that Owen uses. How to load your conscience with the guilt of your sin. Now that might, I'm reading this quote for a reason, that might sound counterintuitive. Like, is that really what we're supposed to do? We've been forgiven. There's, there's no guilt. It's gone. And we sing songs about this. Well, yes, it's true. He's not denying that. But he's getting at something that should come before we get to the comfort of the gospel. And, and, this, and the subsection that I'm reading from is called Consider Christ whom you have pierced. How often do you consider Christ whom you have pierced when you are thinking about your sin, forsaking your sin, confessing your sin, endeavoring to repent of your sin? I'm going to warn you again, it's, it's, it, I'm not ending with a feel-good quote. His point is that before we bring our sin to the gospel for relief and comfort, we must bring our sin to the gospel for further conviction. It's something we often fail to do. We often fail to take our sin to the gospel uh, for discomfort before we take our sin to the gospel for comfort. We need to be uncomfortable in light of the gospel. And when we do, because when we don't do that, we short-circuit the mortification process. So here's the quote. Bring your lust to the gospel, not for relief, 
but for further conviction of its guilt. Look on Christ, whom you have pierced, and be bitter. Say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this how I respond to the Father for his love, to the Son for his blood, and to the Holy Ghost for his grace? Is this how I repay the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash and that the blessed spirit has chosen to dwell in? And can I keep myself out of the dust? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? How can I hold up my head with any courage before him? Do I consider communion with him of so little value that for the sake of this vile lust, I have left, room, I have left little room for him in my heart? How will I escape judgment if I neglect salvation in this way? In the meantime, what do I say to the Lord? Love, mercy, grace, goodness, peace, joy, consolation. I have despised them all and treated them as worthless, just so I could harbor a lust in my heart. Can I imagine God's fatherly features before me so that I can provoke him to his face? Was my soul washed only to make room for this new depravity? What would I try to, why would I try to frustrate the purpose of Christ's death? Why would I daily grieve the Spirit through whom I am sealed until the day of redemption? Entertain your conscience daily with this treatment, Owen says. See if it can withstand the aggravation of its guilt. If it does not sink a little and melt, then I'm afraid that your case is a dangerous one, end quote. And what Owen is helping us to do and helping us to see is the disgusting, vile, offensive nature of our sin. Because it's only when we see our sin for what it is and our motivations for what they are that we can then First, see the grace of God for what it is, how big it is, how great it is. And only when we see it this way can we hate it for what it is and then mortify it. Let's pray that God helps us to do this. Oh God, we thank you for the grace of God in Jesus, which is even greater than our sin. Help us to put to death the deeds of the body, even going down to the root of those deeds and our desires, our secret uh, longings and impulses. Lord, we pray that your spirit would enable us to do what you've required of us, which is to mortify the lingering sin. We confess that we need your grace and we also confess that you deserve all of our obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.